Hello from Gilbert and Tobin. I'm Moya Dodd. And I'm Matt Rubenstein, and this is The Competitive Edge, what you need to know about competition law in Australia and around the world. Today, the view from 9,144 metres. OECD Competition Committee Chair Professor Frederick Jenny joins us in Paris to talk about the seismic changes to competition law and policy we've seen over the decades and how we're now dealing with climate change and AI. There can be such a thing as market failures. There can be cases where coordination between firms is necessary in order for them to take a big technological step. So it may mean that maybe there are some limits to competition. And we've seen this a little bit in the COVID crisis already, but we see it even more in the climate change area. So all this points to industrial policy as a complement to competition policy may be necessary. And we'd usually say the view from 30,000 feet, but I'm guessing this is because the French invented the metric system? They did, during the French Revolution, in fact. Guess they weren't comfortable using the king's foot when they'd just chopped off his head. No, that could have been it. And they invited the English to take part in the metric system, but they said no thanks. And ever since then, the English have been terrified that European bureaucrats would outlaw their imperial measurements. It was a small but perhaps significant part of the Brexit campaign. I mean, there was a directive that said you had to use the metric system along with any other system you wanted to use on packaging or whatever. That's right. But there was no truth to the rumour that you wouldn't be allowed to use imperial idioms, like if you had an ounce of common sense, and you'd have to say if you had 28 grams of common sense instead. Mm, Yeah, well, maybe not at first, but you know, give them 2.54 centimetres and they'll take 1.6 kilometres. That's what they say. I did see a poster on the internet where the M&M movie 8 Mile was called 12.872 kilometre, but that was just a joke. Mm, debatable. But first, Matt, what's been happening around the grounds? Well, Moya, we both live in the inner west area of Sydney, where the main thing happening around the grounds and underground is that we've all run aground on the new Rosale Interchange, which connects quite a few of Sydney's motorways, and it's going to connect even more of them over the next few years. Luckily for me, I was overseas when that opened. Didn't go smoothly. Not entirely. There's been confusing signage, bus lanes in the middle of the road, and an endless series of merge points which have choked up traffic and angered local movie star Rebel Wilson. She's written on Instagram, Thanks, Roselle Interchange, for now making a 15-minute trip into the city 90 minutes via Victoria Road. WTF. Oh, yes. Where's the freeway? We've all been there. Yeah, or maybe that was a reference to the 2016 film Whiskey Tango Foxtrot, which featured fellow Australian actor Margot Robbie. Yeah, or it could have been a nod to my t-shirt, Women Transforming Football. It's a great t-shirt, right? But we're talking about this because the new interchange sits at the centre of the WestConnex motorway system, which, like many other toll roads in Australia, is majority owned and operated by Transurban. I remember the ACCC cleared the acquisition of WestConnex in 2018 after Transurban promised to publish traffic data on all its motorways. And that was to help potential competitors bid for future toll road projects. That's right. And experts are now asking for traffic flow data so they can see if it's all as bad as it looks. But because of the undertaking, we'll all be able to go to nswtollroaddata.com and crunch the numbers for ourselves, shortly after the end of each financial quarter. Hmm. So WTF is website traffic flows. It is now. But we also have to wonder whether Transurban's competitive advantage in data and modelling traffic flows is really all it was cracked up to be. Well, cynics might say that the whole point is to make the local roads so painful that more people use the motorways. I'm sure that's right, but it seems like maybe they've over-delivered on that metric here. I've heard there are calls for a Royal Commission. Of course, and they're messing around with the lanes, they're putting some of the buses underground, and Rebel Wilson has just issued a further statement. 
I'm trying to go to work. It's Tuesday morning. You know, what normally can take 15 minutes, 30 minutes uh, to go from Victoria Road to the Anzac Bridge. I literally was just at one traffic lights for almost 30 minutes. Like it's literally crazy. And I'm sure if you guys are out there and running late to work as well, like it's, it's a nightmare. There's nothing you can do. You just get trapped. Sounds like she's considering a run for transport minister. Well, we could do a lot worse. And the ACCC does these ex-post reviews of merger decisions where it checks in on mergers it let through in the past and it sees how those markets are going and whether it made the right call. I'd like to see the ex-post review on that clearance back in 2018, you know, even if it wouldn't have made much difference to the current fiasco. Well, it's not the ACCC's fault that those left-turn-only lanes were supposed to say buses accepted, but they said buses expected instead. Yeah, I guess as long as there are reasonable grounds to expect those buses, that's all right. But they wouldn't have happened on Rebel Wilson's watch. No, it wouldn't. And Rebel, if you're listening, may I suggest a bike? We can pedal our way to net zero. Has anything been happening outside the inner west? It sure has. Uh, as we said last time, GCR have just had their first GCR live conference here in Sydney. And our own partners, Elizabeth Avery and Louise Klamka, had co-chairing and moderating duties. GCR is for great conference wranglers, right? Something like that. You know, there are these non-phonetic alphabets out there that are meant to be as confusing and ambiguous as possible. So the opposite of the NATO radio alphabet of whiskey, tango and foxtrot. So it's like A is for aisle, B is for delium. C is for czar, D is for gin. You've got it. And it was a great conference they wrangled with panels on the new merger proposals, cartel enforcement, digital platforms and environmental collaborations. And ACCC Chair Gina Cascotlieb gave a keynote that tied together all of those issues. So we spoke last time about the Treasury consultation paper on the merger proposals. What was the vibe at the conference? So both the Chair and Mergers Commissioner Stephen Ridgway said, again, that the current test was skewed towards clearance and that where there's a real question about whether the merger will lessen competition, then the risk should be on the merger parties and not on consumers. Well, what does that mean in practice, though? Like, if there's a genuine question over the impact of a merger, is it necessarily better for the consumer if it doesn't go ahead? That is the question. And as Jennifer Fish from Houston Kemp pointed out, there are always two kinds of regulatory error to think about. There's the kind where you intervene when you really shouldn't, and then the kind where you don't intervene when you really should. And both kinds have their own costs. And historically, and Frederick Jenny touches on this, the view was that too much intervention in markets was more costly to society than not enough intervention. And that assumption is now being challenged. It is being challenged. But even if the test is skewed towards clearance, that doesn't necessarily mean that skewing against clearance is going to benefit consumers. I think there's still some work to be done there. We know that the vast majority of mergers are cleared in pre-assessment. Most of the rest are cleared outright or with undertakings, and only a very small number end up in court. So how much does this really matter? Well, the ACCC says that the ones they do take to court are the ones that could matter a lot, like the Pacific Horizon merger, which could impact transport up and down the east coast of Australia. And they also said, and this was kind of new, that there have been mergers they didn't want to clear, but they felt that they had to because they weren't confident they'd be able to block them in court. Hmm. And those kinds of decisions could also impact consumers. But that comes back to the same question, doesn't it? Would changing the onus or lowering the burden actually be better for consumers? I think it's still hard to say. So those ex-post merger reviews we were talking about before have looked at six mergers the ACCC recently approved. In two of them, they found that prices had increased, at least for some customers, and that included one that the ACCC hadn't really wanted to clear. And in the other mergers, they found that the markets were still working pretty well. So what does that tell us about the test? 
Probably not much. I mean, it'd be great to see more research into the impacts of mergers that were approved or successfully opposed. But of course, it isn't always easy to prove what might have been. So what were the other highlights of the conference? One was definitely a history lesson from Commissioner Ridgway about the origin of the word draconian, which he said had been used by a prominent competition law practitioner in relation to the merger proposals. Ah, that was our own Elizabeth Avery, wasn't it? It was. I think she said one characterization of the test might have sounded a bit draconian, but maybe that nuance wasn't fully captured by the headlines. Well, everyone knows that Draco was the archon of Athens in the 7th century BCE, and he laid down the first written law, which made things more transparent, but was also very harsh. The punishment for almost everything was death. Yeah, if you were lucky, you might be sold into slavery. <laughs> but Commissioner Ridgway reassured us that the Draconian Code was repealed after about 20 years. So if the new merger process turns out to be too harsh, we wanted to put up with it forever. Yeah, just for 20 years or so. Has the death penalty ever applied to competition and consumer law, Matt? Well, apparently Diocletian's edict on maximum prices in the 3rd century had the death penalty for exceeding the price caps on various goods. So maybe we should be talking about these laws being Diocletianian. Did the ACCC Enforcement Commissioner Liza Carver suggest anything like that? No, but she agreed with our own partner Liana Witt from the last episode that it's the prospect of a custodial sentence for very senior executives that most effectively delivers deterrence and also drives the ACCC's cartel immunity program. So that's the rationale for the criminal cartel system, even if so far those sentences have been suspended or served in the community. Exactly. And Justice Wigney was on that panel as well, and he said, as he said before, that the cartel prohibitions are too complex. They're a highly prescriptive labyrinth this time, and we might want to take a step back and think about how we can improve them for the future. Did he mention the cryptic crossword? I thought he was about to. He said the cryptocurrency fellow whose name ah, escaped me. Ah. And I think that meant uh, Sam Bagman freed But that's not stopping us. There is a new competition law-themed cryptic crossword available just in time for the holidays at crossword.info slash edge. Mm, that's like getting a lump of coal in your stocking, isn't it? What about the digital platforms? Well, right before the conference, the ACCC released the seventh report in its digital platform services inquiry. Repo number seven. Thank you. And that looked at the way that digital platforms are expanding beyond their core capabilities and into overlapping ecosystems, perhaps to protect their market power or use it to control new markets or make it harder for new entrants. So these are things like AI, voice assistants, smart home devices, cloud services, and there's a diagram showing six big tech companies, and most of them are competing in most of those areas, far more than they competed in the core services that each of them provide. So is that a problem? I guess that's a problem if nobody outside those six big tech companies can enter those markets, or if there's a loss of innovation and customer choice. But that's why the interim report is renewing the ACCC's call for a new framework to regulate those digital platforms. And that would include ex-ante codes of conduct that would apply to designated digital platforms as well as some minimum standards for all digital platforms and an economy-wide prohibition against unfair trading practices. That's right. And Assistant Treasurer and Financial Services Minister Stephen Jones said that very morning that those proposals were still under active consideration. And we'll talk a bit later on about what that's turned out to mean. Does that mean they're considering them while they're running a marathon? Sounds a bit more like Andrew Lee. It does, doesn't it? Uh, a lot of the conversation on the panel was about balancing flexibility against certainty as well as the ways that platforms should participate in working out what the rules are going to be, and how hard it can be to predict how platforms and consumers will react to any rules that are in place. Like when Google in Europe had to present a choice screen for search engines, and it said, 
sure, we'll have a choice screen and we'll run an auction to see who gets to appear on that choice screen. Yeah, and that probably wasn't what the regulators had in mind. Mm. And Google did back away from that one in the end. Mm, yeah, I've just yandexed the outcome of that intervention. And apparently web search is now extremely competitive. Yep, I mojiked that myself before and it all checks out. Mm. What about those collaborations for environmental and sustainability purposes? So what stood out to me there was that on one hand, you've got the ACCC saying, we're happy to look at these collaborations, but you do have to bring us something fairly concrete so we can substantiate the public benefits and weigh them against the detriments. And then businesses are saying, sure, but we're not at that stage yet and we need to collaborate so we can work out all of that. Mm, sounds like all that compliance training is having an impact. Yeah, and that is good to see. The ACCC is always saying it's not an advisory body. Rod Sims in particular said he didn't want to be a compliance officer for business, but it could be open to engaging a bit earlier than usual when there's a sustainability issue. But not every discussion between competitors will be a cartel or a concerted practice, will it? No, it won't. And if you put in place the right kind of rules and protocols and oversight, and it's clear that you won't take any action together without getting legal advice and an authorization if you need one, that could often get you to the point where you can take something to the ACCC. Mm, but definitely talk to your lawyers before you talk to any competitors, even about environmental issues. Definitely. And GCR have some great articles on the whole conference, which we'll link to in the show notes. Does that have a paywall or should I say a toll point? It does, but we're like a free, if perhaps more circuitous version. Ah, so we're the rat run. We are the rat run. What's been happening outside that conference? Well, it's still on environmental issues. The ACCC has accepted an undertaking from Moo Premium Foods after finding it had misrepresented the green credentials of its yogurt tubs. So we know that all the regulators are going after greenwashing and the ACCC has just released its guide for business on making environmental claims. What was the misrepresentation here? So they said the tubs were made from 100% ocean plastic. And if you'd read that on your yogurt tub in the morning, Moya, what would you think that meant? I guess my first thought would be they were made of plastic fished out of the ocean. But then I might wonder if that was really a thing people did. Yeah, and you'd be onto something there. Fishing plastic out of the ocean is actually pretty difficult and expensive. Even the Great Pacific Garbage Patch is pretty dispersed. You can't really see it when you're in the middle of it. And there's only about 10 kilos of plastic in every square kilometre of ocean. That's only a stone and a half in every 250 acres. That's right. So where do these yogurt tubs come from? They're made from what's called ocean-bound plastic, which means plastic that would otherwise be at risk of ending up in the ocean. And there's a few different industry standards within that, but the broadest one is any uncollected plastic waste within 50 kilometres of the coastline, which is about 10 leagues. Ah, so it's not literally ocean plastic. It's not even literally literal plastic. Uh, you know, because the literal zone is like the actual shoreline. Oh, I knew that. So the Antropocene's investigation found that the moo plastic was collected from coastal areas in Malaysia. And the tubs had an asterisk after ocean plastic and various disclaimers, but the commission still felt that the headline would be misleading. So now it says ocean-bound plastic instead. Wasn't that a Simon and Garfunkel song? I think you're right. So maybe not a huge change, but it's good to be accurate. It is. And you remember that over the years, we've had ACCC interventions in free-range eggs, freshly baked bread, porridge oats, bacon and orange juice. Well, it's good to see that the new ACCC is still getting inspiration over the breakfast table. It is, and also that it's now looking at some lighter breakfast alternatives. Indeed. Well, if they were real hipsters, they'd go after acai bowls, wouldn't they? Not to mention avocados. So in New Zealand, the ACCC, the Accident Compensation Commission, is very much on that case, and it's issued a safety warning about the injury risks of avocados. They've caused hundreds of compensation claims and hundreds of thousands of dollars in payouts every year. They're like the button batteries in New Zealand, are they? They're like quad bikes powered by button batteries. And luckily, the ACCC have put out a useful guide for how to prepare and eat an avocado 
without becoming a statistic. Oh, that sounds like a very important PSA. Yep. Practice safe avocado. All right. Well, maybe the ACCC could put out a guide on how to eat a kiwi. How about a couple more? So the ACCC have obtained a record penalty for resale price maintenance after power tool distributor Tektronic admitted it had set minimum prices for retailers of Milwaukee power tool products between 2016 and 2021. And that actually cut off supply to a couple of retailers who dropped their prices. That's right. So the court imposed a penalty of $15 million, which is about 200 Bitcoin, though that could change, obviously, plus corrective notices and compliance training. Does the general revenue accept Bitcoin? No, only iTunes vouchers from what I hear. Okay, well, for the avoidance of doubt, only Apple accepts iTunes vouchers. Didn't Tektronic get an authorization or a notification for resale price maintenance? No, that was Tool Technic who got both in 2014 and 2018, respectively. Also for power tools, but different kinds. Oh, I thought that was Technotronic. No, they famously demanded in 1987 that we pump up the jam. Oh, pump up the price of jam? (laughs) Now we're back to breakfast again. It always comes back to breakfast. Or petit déjeuner, because Moya, you were recently in Paris, where you spoke at the OECD's roundtable on competition and professional sports. Yes, it was a really interesting gathering of regulators from dozens of countries, including Australia, with Gina Cascott-Lieb and Commissioner Anna Brakey in attendance too. I know Gina's always been interested in sports. She was always up for Thursday, Thursday here at GNT. Yes, she was. And I'm glad she's taking this topic seriously since the very next weekend, she was one of 59,000 people at the Arsenal-Chelsea match in London. And that was a new attendance record for the Women's Super League. She's always setting records. But afterwards, you caught up with Professor Frederick Jenny, who has been chair of the competition committee of the OECD since 1994. and was also a judge on the French Supreme Court. Ah, yes, we had a lovely tete-a-tete. Professor Jenny has seen a lot of changes over that time, and he's still on the cutting edge with his work on climate change and algorithms. Let's take a listen. I'm very glad to have with us this afternoon Professor Frederick Jenny, who is the chair of the competition committee of the OECD and has been for a number of years. Welcome, Professor Jenny. Thank you for having me. Thank you for making the time. Well, you've been in this role at the OECD for some years now, and it strikes me that you have an incredible vantage point to observe the evolution of competition law over the years and over industries and through different phases. What are your observations now as we reach a point in time, maybe post-COVID, also on the edge of the digital revolution? What are your views now of how we've got to where we are and what's coming next? I know that's a big question. It is indeed a very large question. Uh, Let me uh, go back a little bit in in history. When I came into this job at the OECD, competition was the preserve of ministries. And uh, really, the members of the competition committee were representative of other ministries of trade or ministries of finance or economic affairs. And what happened in in the uh, mid-80s and up to the 90s was the fact that slowly but surely, independent authority became much more important. And now if you look at the composition of the competition committee at OECD, it's mostly independent authorities. Okay. So there's been an institutional movement. Together with it, there have been three or four phases. First of all, the 1990s were the period when there was a great deal of trust in markets, both at the global level and at the national level. And uh, those were the the high days of uh, competition. One talks a lot about the uh, Chicago School. I wouldn't put it necessarily this way, but at least a great deal of faith 
in the fact that competition and competitive markets were able to solve most of uh, the problems. And we deregulated and corporatized a lot of government-owned assets. So towards that period, there was indeed a movement to not only promote competition among uh, firms, but also to try to re-regulate or deregulate or improve on the regulations. And for example, at OECD, there were a few years which were devoted to regulatory reform and uh, trying to make sure that not only anti-competitive practices wouldn't get into the way of competitive market, but also anti-competitive regulations. Now, the world started to change around 2000, I would say. That is when the attempt to promote competition at the World Trade Organization faltered because there was not a consensus. Well, there was not a consensus on trade, but also there was not a consensus on the wisdom of competition, particularly developing countries didn't think that competition was needed. And they were worried about the fact that this was a way for multinationals to try to open their markets. But then there was the financial crisis, and the financial crisis told us competitive markets, like the real estate market in the U.S., or the banking market in the U.S., can fail. So this shattered a little bit the faith that one could have in the rationality of the markets. And then Greenspan talked about the exuberance of markets, which meant the irrationality, really, of markets. And this went against the idea which had been promoted previously, that market would allocate in the best possible ways the resources. So this was the first sign that maybe there was something that competition was not always sufficient to protect against economic problems. Then came, of course, the COVID crisis, and the COVID crisis told us a little bit the same thing, but I would say that the the message of the COVID crisis were at two levels. One of them was international value chain can be fragile because something happens in the country where you secure your goods from, then you have a deficit at home, and then you have a, a problem of supply and demand. So from the point of view of security, there may be a certain fragility to rely too much on international value chain. The second thing that it told us was that markets work indeed, but they work very slowly. When you don't have masks against COVID, it's not tomorrow or, the, or next week that you're going to get the mask that you need because you don't have any supply chain domestically. So that was a second set of consideration that says, well, markets may be useful, but they are not perfect. They need some adjustments. One of them was the fact we cannot rely entirely on international trade to provide efficient goods because then we open ourselves to a problem of security. And the second one was that maybe industrial policy has a a use to make sure that resources are allocated where you want them to be and to make sure, for example, that you can constitute uh, security stocks so that in case something happens, you have enough. The third thing that happened was the digital revolution. And this led to two things, or two or three things. A, inability of competition authorities to deal with the issue of competition in the digital world because it's very different from competition in the non-digital world. B, Therefore, a questioning, now, depending on which uh, country you look at, uh, there was a different uh, dimension. In the U.S., it's mostly a question about whether the goals of competition have been unduly narrowed and whether we should go from competition 
to eliminate anti-competitive practices on relevant markets to fighting abuse of economic power as opposed to market power. In Europe and in some other countries in the world, the issue has not been so much whether the goals of competition should be changed, but much more whether the instrument of competitional enforcement was adequate in a situation where we have rapidly expanding highly technological market with a lot of innovation, or whether it was such a clumsy instrument that one needed to have a complement, some kind of regulation, or maybe a substitute to solve the problems of competition. So there's been a questioning of the instrument and a questioning of the goals. We've also seen competition law react or being asked to react to some of the bigger challenges that the world is facing, climate change, sustainability, and obviously you mentioned the digital platforms, which is kind of an ecosystem versus ecosystem type of competition. Do you think competition law has been able to respond to those issues? Do you think there's another phase to come where there'll be more adjustments and evolutions made? Um, No, they haven't been able to. Because for a long time, there was a denial of the fact that there could be market failures or competition failures. So that is coming together with the the digital economy, uh, I mean, the spread of the digital economy. And what it does is that it revives the idea that industrial policy may be necessary in at least two set of circumstances. First, when you need to have a massive reallocation of resources, for example, from the non-digital sector to the digital sector, or from usual technologies to clean technologies. Mm -hmm. In those cases, maybe there is a use for government to speed up the process of transition, because if you don't speed it up, either you lose a technological war or you increase uh, the danger uh, associated with climate change. So that's the first thing. The second thing that it has led to is the fact that there can be such a thing as market failures. There can be cases where coordination between firms is necessary in order for them to take a big technological step. So it may mean that maybe there are some limits to competition. And we've seen this a little bit in the COVID crisis already, but we see it even more in the climate change area. So all this points to industrial policy as a complement to competition policy may be necessary. And there is an attempt, I mean, in the OECD, we're going to take up this topic in the near future, because up to now, competition authorities have denied the value of industrial policy, or they looked down upon uh, industrial policy as being undue interference in market mechanism. But we now realize, I think, that there are cases where industrial policy is necessary in order to help competition deliver the best of what it can deliver. So the idea is what is a pro-competitive industrial policy? And this is one of the issues that we're going to look at. Does that almost take us back to the 1990s, though, where we had market liberalisation, but there were newly regulated companies, newly privatised companies in some cases, that were quite heavily regulated with an industrial policy in place. And yet it was the principles of competition law that were guiding that it was competition policy that was guiding that kind of industrial regulation. I, I think there's a bit of a difference between the regulation, let's say, of the 70s or the 80s, which was adopted when there was massive opening up to competition of sectors, whether it's railways, telecom, and, and all those. And in those cases, the, the, the idea was uh, to try to 
operate the transition between a world without competition to a world with competition, and therefore to deal with some of the indivisibilities that were there. Now the issue is, I think, a little bit different when we think about uh, climate change. It is the idea that competitive markets can fail and, and they may need to be a complement to help competition either deliver faster or deliver better results. So it's not so much a question of transition from lack of competition to competition, but more of accompanying uh, competition and complementing it. Is it such a surprise that markets would fail, though? I mean, all the assumptions we make about markets, that they're perfectly competitive, there's perfect information, that people are perfectly rational. I mean, you know, there's a lot of cases where that doesn't hold true. So is it such a surprise, really, that there is market failure? I I think that you're absolutely right in saying that it should not be such a surprise. But I think that the emphasis was at a time when there was a need to open up the economy to private initiatives, to give it dynamism. Uh, at a time, one was not so concerned with market failures. One was more concerned with opening up to competition, ensuring that competition actually works, trying through, for example, in the WTO and, and other at the global level to try to promote competition. Once competition has been quite developed, there are now more than 140 countries that have a competition law, so it has become much more generalized. Then there is now more of a concern about the fact that, yes, indeed, there are cases where competition may not be sufficient to do the job. It should not be abandoned, but it should be complemented, and that's the complement that we're working on. So I think that it's not a surprise, but it's a, it's a switch because now we have much more competition than we used to, and we can then go to phase two, which is to make this competition as useful as possible. I guess we've been lapping up the upsides of competition for many years, and now we need to also address the downsides that come with it. Professor, there's one more question I want to ask you, one more topic I want to take you to, which is AI. On this podcast, we talk about AI quite a bit. And I think the world is coming to terms with the fact that many of the interactions we have, whether it's with a bank or anybody online, is actually a robot and not necessarily a real person. And that these intelligent machines can perform a lot of functions that are more efficient, but they may or may not be what we collectively want. You've done some work on the question of whether algorithms applied by artificial intelligence could in fact be anti-competitive, clearly not by intention because robots don't have intentions, but through their effect. Tell us about that work because it sounds fascinating. Well, there's always been a distinction in competition law between parallel behavior, which is not anti-competitive or at least not illegal, and collusion. Collusion is really defined economically and legally in specific terms. Collusion means that there is some mechanism of punishment and reward. That's the economic exception. Mm -hmm. And in legal terms, it basically comes down to the fact that there's somewhere an agreement. In other words, there's an object which is, in fact, to reduce competition or to facilitate a reduction of competition. What AI does is that it leads us to situations which are not absolutely parallel, but where there is no agreement nonetheless. I mean, the sophisticated algorithm don't have any conscience of the fact that there's such a thing as a collusive result. I mean, they, they know how to maximize profits. Some of them realize that if they lower the price, there are consequences because others might lower their price and they eventually discover that they cannot do it. We're still uncertain on the extent to which this is true, 
certainly lab experiment has shown that if we talk about duopolies, for example, that can happen. Whether we are at a level in artificial intelligence so that we can generalize it to more complex industry structure is still an open question. But at the same time, we know that artificial intelligence is developing very rapidly. So I think it's only a question of time until uh, this can be done. So the question then is, what can we do about it? And there are several layers. There's a very simple layer, which is when there's a pre-existing anti-competitive agreement and which uses an algorithm. In, in this case, you just sanction the pre-existing agreement. The hub and spoke case is a little bit more complicated because in order to, to characterize it from the legal point of view, you have to show that the people who are using this mechanism are aware of the fact that they give information and that their competitors give similar information. So, so you need an added thing. The difficult part is the case where different firms use different algorithms, but those algorithms happen to independently of each other get into uh, some kind of collusive equilibrium. So that is much closer to parallel pricing. It's not optimal pricing, but it's parallel pricing. At this point, I don't know exactly what the solution is. It's not obvious that there is a legal solution that can be applied. Technically, at the time when we speak, it seems that the only way to control for this is to prohibit the algorithm from being fed with some data. But if you prohibit algorithm from getting, let's say, price data, you may also limit the efficiency of those algorithms. So there may be a trade-off there between having to face higher prices because they are closer to collusive equilibrium or losing efficiency. This is only how much I know. We are working uh, at OECD and elsewhere on trying to uh, characterize very clearly what the problems are and when competition authorities can intervene. But it may be also that we will have to need to change our interpretation of antitrust law or competition law. And maybe we have too restricted a notion of agreement or a notion of meeting of the mind and that we may have to enlarge that uh, notion in order to be able to capture those collusive solutions, but where there is no real meeting of the mind. So it's almost like an effects test that doesn't ask whether there has actually been an agreement, but it says if there are actions that have these effects in the market that are anti-competitive, then That's no, right. there's some obligation but, to address them. Yes. One difficulty there, of course, is that you don't even know that you're in a collusive, mm -hmm. uh, the collusive level. Mm -hmm. The only thing that you observe is that prices are fairly high, but you have no notion of what would be the competitive price precisely because the algorithm don't give uh, this. And there is no way of looking at intent to see whether somebody has been in or number of actors have been intent on eliminating competition. So we first have to figure out how to identify situations where the result of those algorithms is not competitive mm -hmm. and then figure out how we can make sure that the algorithm don't end up there without losing the efficiency that one can get from using extremely powerful ways to interpret data, which in the end and in many fields is a very uh, important efficiency gain for society. I mean, if you think about medicine, if you think about many other fields, I mean, this is exactly what is good about those algorithms. It's almost like you have a microcosm of the problem that we might invent machines that are so fast and so smart that they run ahead of us and they come to a point where we're not sure that we wanted to go 
but we then have to somehow assess whether we want to be there. Indeed. I mean, it, it means that there's got to be some ethical issues that have to be uh, solved and uh, that we need to test things and to correct them. The positive thing is that AI doesn't have intent. So we're at least protected against the fact that those algorithms would intentionally do something that would be harmful to society. That doesn't mean that they may not end up doing something which is harmful, but presumably it's something that we could avoid by changing, constraining in some way the algorithm. If we realize in time. If we realize it. But I think that uh, with the generalization of this tool, I mean, we will, you know, it's like any tool. I mean, take a hammer. It can be very useful in some circumstances and do a lot of harm in other circumstances. So uh, we've got to be aware of uh, making sure that when it's used, it's used for the right purpose. Well, it's very important work that you're doing, and I'm glad that you're doing it. Very exciting to be uh, in a community, which is the competition community, dealing with all those new issues at this time, because they really question the basis on which we have practiced competition law and antitrust law in the past. And it's very exciting to see how it should be adjusted so that it could remain relevant. Indeed. Well, thank you very much for your time, Professor Jenny. It's been wonderful to talk to you and I wish you all the best with your work at the OECD. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. What a great interview. Famously, when Prime Minister Paul Keating was asked, what's your industry policy? He'd always say, it's competition policy. So interesting that we're now talking about industrial policy coming back and it's the competition regulators who are behind that push. Yeah, really interesting about the idea of collusion between algorithms too. It does sound like we might need to change the way we think about intention and how we can get an algorithm to do what we want without taking away what's useful about it. Yeah, I mean, humans have known forever that it's better for them to collaborate instead of competing. That's why we had to invent competition law. But now that the robots are working that out too, it's even harder to deal with. Maybe we need AIs to enforce special competition laws against other AIs. Yeah, we could call them the Rod Sims. (laughs) Or we could sign up Hope Sogni, who's an AI character who wants to be the next FIFA president. She was partly trained on things that I've written and said, amongst many others. Uh, Then she'll be a shoe-in. Ah, well, I hope that's not all you've got in your crystal ball. Well, I can also see that the Treasury's active consideration of ex-ante regulation for digital platforms is picking up the pace a little, because they've just published their response to the ACCC's repo number five. That was the half-time report that recommended sweeping changes to the competition consumer law in response to concerns about digital platforms. And this must be a pretty comprehensive response, Matt, because they've had that report for a year. I'm sure they've been thinking about it for a year, but the response actually gets straight to the point. It supports, in principle, each of the ACCC's recommendations for digital platforms, and the ACCC has welcomed that in-principle agreement. Well, the ACCC's press release says consumers and small businesses to benefit from proposed new regulation of digital platforms. Is that jumping the gun a bit? Well, in a newspaper, we know the journalists don't write the headlines, so it might be a similar thing here. Agreeing in principle to a recommendation can mean, yeah, but can also mean, yeah, nah. So they might agree with the ACCC's goals of protecting consumers and ensuring they're treated fairly, but it doesn't necessarily commit to all of the ACCC's proposed solutions for that. Yeah, so for example, where the ACCC has asked for mandatory internal dispute processes, Treasury says it will call on industry to develop voluntary standards. But Treasury does say that the ACCC has presented a strong case for ex-ante regulation. That's right. And so Treasury will commence work on a possible legislative framework that could enable the creation of service-specific codes, and that work could be informed by extensive consultation 
on an appropriate framework and governance model. So we're still a way off? It feels like they've kicked it another 26 miles down the road. You mean 42 kilometres? Or about 18.8 first Potrasivis. And that's based on the system of weights and measures that Donald Knuth designed for Mad Magazine a couple of decades before he won the Turing Award for his analysis of algorithms. I will be sure to quindo that. Says Namit. And in late breaking news, in the US, Epic Games has won its court action against Google. A jury has found that Google has a monopoly in Android app distribution and in-app billing services, and it's maintained those through revenue agreements with smartphone makers and key app and game developers that are meant to discourage rival app stores and payment systems on Android. Now, Epic brought a similar case against Apple about its app store and lost on most of its grounds. What was the difference here? Well, the judge in the Apple case found that there was a broader mobile gaming market that included both Apple and Google's operating systems, and Apple didn't quite have a monopoly in that market. In the Google case, the jury found a narrower market limited to Android, and it was easier for them to find that Google had a monopoly there. Mm, And I guess Apple didn't need to make any agreements with other parties to protect its app store because it has almost complete control over the operating system and all the phones that use it. That's right. And the judge still has to work out what remedies to impose, and Google has said it'll appeal anyway, so there's still a fair way to go. In the meantime, Epic's actions against Apple and Google in Australia are set down for a joint hearing from March to July 2024, so it's going to be another epic year. Well, it's been an epic episode. Remember, you can find relevant links in the show notes, including to our listener survey. We'd love to hear what you think, and you can win some cool pod merch as well. And we've got some great guests and topics to come next year with more on sport and competition, merger reforms, and undertakings. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, leave us a review, and tell your friends. And don't forget the new cryptic crossword at crossword.info slash edge. Till next time, this was the Competitive Edge with Gilbert and Tobin.